You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Van. All right, everyone, welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, as always, joined by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hey, everybody. And today, we want to talk a little bit about investing and uh, specifically, you know, investing towards your specific financial goals rather than just arbitrarily investing. Not that there's anything wrong with arbitrarily investing, but you know, ideally um, for, for our financial objectives, we have a, a loosely defined investing game plan to help us get there. And when we often talk to people about their investments, you know, we'll take a look at a statement or they'll pull up their 401k website and show it to us and you know, we'll ask them, what are you invested in? Or, 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 or how'd you pick the, the funds that you, you selected in your 401k? And, and often the answer is, uh, uh, I don't know, or it, I think it just automatically invested for me. And there wasn't really a, much thought put behind it. Or maybe they, they did a little Googling and said, oh, I, I did the S&P 500 because that's what I read in a blog. That, that was the best. Um, but really, if someone asks you the question, why are you invested the way you are, there's really only one correct answer. And that answer should be because it gives me the best chance to achieve my financial goals. And it's going to be different for everyone. You know, everyone has a different set of goals, circumstances, comfort with risk, ways they want to achieve their goals. You know, some people would prefer to just ride the stock market, other may want passive income from rental properties or annuities, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. So we want to dive in to that a little bit and kind of talk about framing your investment strategy around your actual objectives and goals for that investment. Absolutely. And that does mean that you have to take a second to assess what your goals are. And that is often the first step of deciding how we're investing money. Sometimes when you're fairly early on in your career or fairly early in life, it can be hard to define those goals very concretely. You don't really know if you want to retire at age 55 or age 60. You don't necessarily know how many kids you're going to have and all of that kind of stuff. Um, So it can be kind of generic or maybe general goals. Absolutely. But you can also just invest for investing sake. Like I have extra money. I don't necessarily need it for something specific. So I feel like I want to put it to good use. That can also be a goal. So there's lots of different ways that we can approach it. Um, But it is okay to be investing for the sake of investing. Just try to ask yourself, like, when do I think I might want this money back? Because that has a really, really, really big impact on how we want to invest the dollars specifically. I do think the one other answer that we get to that question sometimes when we ask people, like, how are you invested? Why are you invested that way? Is lately at least well, I was on Reddit or I was chatting with the folks at the water cooler and everyone was doing this thing and I wanted to do that thing too. And it was very exciting and I thought I might make some money. Um, And that I would call like investing for fun. And 
I think it's fine, but we want to treat it more as fun and less like trying to achieve long-term goals. Anything to add there, Corey? Um, I think another common one we'll sometimes get is because this one has the lowest fees or this one has the best returns. And, you know, returns, of course, are backwards looking. No guarantees that, that whatever you picked will be the best moving forward. And, and you don't necessarily need the best. Um, in fact, you probably don't want the best because if all of your money is invested in the quote unquote best performing thing, it means you're not diversified. And when the tables turn and the best performing thing is no longer the best performing thing, you're going to have a lot of your money underperforming. Um, and you end up in this this uh, vicious cycle of chasing returns, and you're always disappointed because you, you end up investing in what did the best late, you know, in the past several years, but it's not always the best moving forward. So diversification is huge, um, and, and by definition, being diversified means you won't have the best performing portfolio because some of your stuff will be doing better than than the other stuff in your portfolio. But you'll always have a little bit in the best performing area and you'll never be overly exposed to the worst performing area if you're well diversified. Absolutely. So I think one of the first steps that we like to do with clients when we're we're thinking about investing and getting ready to start do that for starting to do that for folks is just figuring out their personality and like what are their risk and return objectives? Like how much risk can they stomach? That kind of thing. So if history teaches us anything, it has taught us that generally speaking, the more risk we take on, the greater the potential return is. And it's not a guarantee. Like it doesn't necessarily mean like we take on more risk and we absolutely make more money, but there's more potential for a return when you're taking on more risk. Um, and that I think definitely diversification plays a big part in that. Like there's when you're taking on risks with single companies, that does not necessarily play out. So we're talking about more like mutual funds and things like that. We also know that we can't control those returns. So if that's something that makes you really uncomfortable when you're taking on more risk, and we know that we might have some really emotional reactions to big pullbacks in the market, then maybe we need to consider that when we're deciding how we're investing and how much risk we're taking on. So definitely, if you have a long time to be in invested, take on as much risk as you can comfortably do, because that's going to be your way to get the like the greatest potential rate of return to get you to your goals. Um, and you want to be able to stick with that strategy. So we don't want to be changing gears in a market decline because the market declined. We want to be able to pick a strategy and stick with it over the, the term that we want to stick with it or that we've decided on. Absolutely. I think that's a big thing. You know, you, you probably, if say you're young in your 20s and you're investing for retirement, um, you've probably read be more aggressive, maybe even be in a 100% stock portfolio because historically that, you know, is the optimal allocation in your 401k or 403b to give you the greatest growth potential over time. But, you know, if you can't stomach a 60% or greater decline in that, portfolio, then you probably shouldn't be in 100% stocks. You know, it's going to happen at some point. You know, those of you who have been investing long enough, remember the 2008-2009 debacle, um, to put it lightly, with uh, the stock market being down. I think U.S. stocks were down about almost 60%, uh, you know, over the from their peak to trough. Um, we saw in March of 2020, 
stocks were down about 35, 40% from their peak in just a matter of weeks. So if you can't handle that, that roller coaster ride, if you're not a fan of the roller coaster drop, then you know, I'd rather see you invested in a 50% stock portfolio. If it means you'll be able to stick with it and ride out the, the ups and downs, you may not get the, the greatest long-term returns, but at least you'll, you'll be able to stick with it. Cause what really ends up hurting people is when they bail at those suboptimal times, market goes down, you see the negative news headlines, you see the, the pundits out there, the prognosticators predicting, Oh, you know, stock market's going to go down another, you know, however many points, you know, we're going to see an 80% decline. Well, if we're down 50 and we're the, you know, the, the news stations are saying some someone coming on there saying that we're going to see an 80% drop. Well, shoot, I better get out now and avoid that 30% remainder. Um, and then I'll get back in once it drops. Well, now you're, you're playing a gambling guessing game and you got to guess right twice when to get out, when to get back in. And if history has shown us anything, usually when the headlines are, are the worst, um, you know, that's, that's the optimal time to be investing and, and, and to be buying because it often turns the corner. Uh, at some point after that. Yeah, I had a handful of clients that kind of were getting started with investing in the spring of last year and everything looks great. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it looks amazing. But I mean, that's not something that's predictable ahead of time. I would not have predicted that. I can I can 100% say that between the but that like the end of March 2020 to now, I didn't predict the market going where it did. Um, and I, I would say that most people are probably in the same boat. Maybe some people guessed right, but it was just that it was guessing, you know, and I, a lot of times that's the case with the stock market. We're guessing we may be right. We may be wrong sometimes. And so let's just take the guesswork out of it and be consistent and stick with our long term strategies. Mm -hmm. And but, I mean, let's be honest, like a lot of this is just dumb luck. You, you put money <laughs> into the market in March of, of uh, 2009 or March of, of 2020. You felt pretty good about yourself looking back. But, you know, I'm sure some people also bought in in February of 2020 or, you know, summer mm -hmm. of 2007. And then, you know, they weren't as as excited. They bought, you know, I know some people are listening to this who bought houses in the mid 2000s, you know, 2006, 2007 thought, oh yeah, I'm in residency. I'll buy a house. And then a few years later when I'm in practice, I'll sell the house for double what I paid for it, pay off my student loans and then move into the, the dream home. And, uh, that didn't work out as planned. Um, <laughs> you know, that's some, in, in some cases that house still couldn't sell for, for what you paid for it. So, you know, luck is a major factor. Um, and we want to try and do our best to, to increase our surface area of luck. So that's, we're just being consistent, being diversified, not trying to, to guess and time things. And, you know, you don't have to, to hit home runs or hit hole in ones every time to, to end up doing all right over the long haul. Mm -hmm. And I think for those folks that are very risk averse and, and, and it just makes sense to go with something a little bit more conservative to avoid that kind of behavior. I mean, there's some downsides to other types of strategies that are maybe considered a little bit safer, but there's other risks associated. So annuities, for example, like you have some built in guarantees, but we have this low expected growth. 
And, you know, if that low expected growth doesn't keep up with inflation, that's another risk. So it's just kind of a trade-off and it's something where you really have to to look at yourself in the mirror and say, like, what is going to help me be successful here? And if that's a trade-off that's worth it for you, because that's going to help you be successful, then it can make sense. Um, yeah, so generally, it just kind of depends on on what your goals are again, but also, you know, how averse you are or averse you are to risk and things like that. Real estate's another one, you know, that a lot of physicians talk about getting into, you know, owning rental properties, something that'll generate passive income, which is fantastic. Big fan of passive income and and it's a good diversifier when you're owning rental properties, when, when most of your other investments are in stocks or bonds. Um, but if you want something that's liquid where you can get the money back whenever you need it, real estate probably isn't an ideal uh, thing to be owning because it's you know, it's not like you can decide one day, all right, let's just sell my my rental property and take the cash out and do something else with it. You know, you can do that with stocks. You can sell them at any moment during the day or during trading hours, you know, so normal business hours for the most part. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, with, with illiquid investments like real estate properties, especially if you aren't, um, you know, the primary decision maker, if you're part of a, a broader real estate investment trust or, or you're just a minor uh, shareholder like it's out of your control it's up to the managing partners to decide when to liquidate when to pay out dividends things of that nature so you, know, you really have to kind of weigh the pros and cons and again getting back to what your goals are what do you what are your objectives what are you investing for that'll help drive those decisions um, and there's no one size fits all, you know, and, and most of you will probably have more than one thing that you invest in, but, um, but, but, but really, you know, something to look at before you put that money in and kind of taking a step back. I think probably the first thing anyone should ask themselves before they invest any money is when do I need this money back? And the answer to that question will help drive some of those latter decisions. Like, you know, what type of account should I put it in? How aggressive or conservative should I be investing this money? You know, for example, if you're saving up for a home down payment in a few years or less, we want to put that money someplace that's accessible without penalty, someplace that's safe, isn't going to go down in value. Last thing we want is the money we're saving up to buy a home in the next year to go down in value because then we have less than what we started with when we actually need the money. So we're shooting for, for low or even zero growth because we want to avoid the downside and we don't want to put it in an account like a retirement account that penalizes us for, for pulling it out before we're 60. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if you're young and, and early on in your career and you're saving for retirement, those 401ks, IRAs, things of that nature are great because they're sheltered from taxes. You can get that tax deferred growth. Sure, you can't touch the money until you're 60 without penalty, but you know we don't need the money before we're 60 in most cases if we're saving up for retirement. So you know, pros and cons to, to, both, um, to both sides of the uh, the spectrum. But again, depending on what you're investing for, you know, one is more attractive than the other. Anything you want to add there, Rochelle? Yeah, that definitely also drives how aggressive we're going to be. So it's not just your risk tolerance. 
um, it's also that time frame. So again, well, like Corey said, with a, a home purchase, sure, we put that in a savings account. It also applies to other sorts of time frames. So if it's college money you need in 10 years, we're probably not going to be as aggressive as we normally would be. If it's retirement money we're not going to touch for 30 years, that's when if you can stomach the risk, it makes a lot of sense to take on those riskier investments that have a higher rate of return over a long period of time, or at least have in the past. So that's a big question to ask yourself. Just like Corey said, I would suggest everyone kind of ask themselves that question first, and then you can layer over your risk tolerance and your personal preferences on top of that, because, you know, making sure you can stick with a strategy like we talked about before is also really important. But I think for a lot of our clients, you know, we have clients that are in their 30s and things like that. But for many of them, you almost have to live your whole life over again before you can even access retirement accounts without having a penalty. So your 403B, you can't get into that until you're at least 59 and a half. That's the age right now. It could it could very well increase by the time we get to retirement age. So you just think like that money's locked away for a long time. If it goes down in the next few months, it doesn't matter. Like it just doesn't matter because we're not taking the money out. We're not selling anything. Um, or at least, you know, that's the goal. We're not selling anything. Please don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it's just money that's going to be tied up for a long time. Please don't take that as investment recommendations. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And the liquidity one is a big one too. You know, when do we need the money back? Do mm -hmm. we need to be able to access it at, at any point in time? You know, if again, the retirement accounts, you're penalized if you touch those before 59 and a half, whereas a taxable brokerage account doesn't offer the same tax shelter uh, and asset protection benefits that a 401k or 403b might offer, but it's liquid and you can get to it at any point in time. So that's the trade-off we take. We're willing to accept the the capital gains taxes um, in, in, in order to be able to access that money at any point in time. Um, you know, we talked about the rental properties. I think the, the desire for growth versus income is a big one as well. Do you want to invest in assets that that give you greater growth potential over time, but may not spit out much in the form of dividends or income? Or would you prefer assets that generate a lot of income, but don't necessarily grow? You know, so some mm -hmm. common examples there, rental properties, annuities, we talked about, you know, those annuities, they provide you a lot of guarantees. One of them big ones and the main reason people purchase annuities is a guaranteed income stream for the rest of their life so that you know you will never outlive your money no matter what you will get that check every year or every month from the annuity company um, and you know that's what social security is it's the biggest annuity in in the world probably um, you know we're, no matter mm -hmm. what you're always going to get that social security check Obviously, there is the risk that the U.S. government goes bankrupt and cancels Social Security, but you know, there, there, uh, I think it's it's a pretty low one, um, you know, there. But uh, but still, it's that you know we're scared of the stock market, we're scared of other investments, we want to have some of our money in something that's you know guaranteed to spit out a set amount every single month or year, but it's not really going to grow much over time. Same with the the rental properties historically real estate doesn't grow as much as stocks do um but if you can get i think get that's surprising to a lot of people i think a lot of people assume mm -hmm. that it does mm -hmm. 
And I think where I think some people see those big quote unquote returns in real estate is just due to leveraging. And we talked about that mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a number of episodes ago um, where, you know, if you leverage your assets, so borrow money to buy, whether it's stocks or real estate or whatever, it, it juices up the returns when things are going well, but it also magnifies the losses when things aren't going well. So if you buy a property with a 20% down payment, um, you know, I think an example we used in that one, if you, you know, bought a $500,000 property and put a hundred thousand dollars down for easy math, um, you know, your quote unquote investment is the hundred thousand dollars out of pocket, the rest you borrowed from the bank and assuming, um, let's just assume the rental income covers the mortgage taxes, maintenance, et cetera. So you don't have any additional out of pocket expenses. And however many years later you sell the property for a million dollars you turned your hundred thousand into a million dollars. We'll just pretend the mortgage is paid off at that point again for easy math. So that's a 10 X return. Whereas if you paid cash for that property, you bought it for 500,000 and then sold it for a million, you just have a two X return. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's where it can be a little misleading um, on the return side, uh, you know, because leverage is involved, but it, it, it can also backfire on you. And I think a lot of people saw mm-hmm. that who bought properties in the mid 2000s and they were way underwater in their mortgages by 2010. Um, you know, it wasn't looking so hot at that point. And there was no easy exit for a lot of those folks too. And I think mm. I think that's the the other thing that you were talking about, Corey, just the illiquidity of the real estate market, especially in situations like that. Like mm-hmm. if it does end up being a, a you know a, a less than optimal investment, it's not like you can just bail. Um, it's it's something that you can end up just stuck with. But we don't want to discount the rental income piece of it. Like if you have a property yeah. that's generating income and paying for itself, knowing that eventually the mortgage is going to be gone, all you have is property taxes, insurance, maintenance, ha- having that cash flow consistently is pretty attractive in addition to the hopefully inflation, you know, matching growth of, of the value of the property. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and you have a few rental properties paying, you know, that's, that's, you know, you could live off of that in retirement. You know, you have a few that are giving you several thousand dollars a month of net income. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, not saying that mm-hmm. you should or shouldn't, you know, do that, but, um, but again, what are, what are your goals and objectives? Are you looking for something that maybe is, you know, using the rental property example, provides more headaches, you know, more, uh, it's illiquid. Um, but you know, it spits out some income for you. If you, you know, have good tenants, maybe a good property manager, it it can hopefully be as, as little hassle as possible, uh, versus, you know, investing in stocks, you know, mutual funds way easier, simpler, less headaches, much more liquid. You can get to it whenever you want. Historically, the growth has been pretty solid over long periods of time doesn't pay much income, you know, the dividends from the stock market are about 2% in aggregate. Um, so it's not like, you know, unless you have a, 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 a huge portfolio, you're not exactly living off the dividends, but you know, we sell some stocks when the growth occurs and to live off of, and you know, hopefully they continue to grow to support our lifestyle over time. So no wrong way to go about yep. it. It's just, what are your objectives, preferences? Do you like having the kind of mentally fixed income checks coming in every month that hopefully increase with inflation or, or, 
Are you content with more of the rising assets that you can sell off as you need money to support your lifestyle? No wrong answer, just personal mm -hmm. preference. Yeah, I think saving enough is probably more important than, than any of the, the specifics, for sure. Bingo. I think one other, th yeah, one other thing I wanted to touch on real quick is that some people have goals that are not related to them personally. So we have more and more people and clients coming to us that are really interested in making sure that their money is doing good things. So there's this whole concept of ESG investing, which we did an episode on that as well. But just to make sure we touch on that here too, that's the idea that you know we can take environmental, social, and governance things into consideration when we're choosing the investments that we're using to help us grow over time. So. This market and this area of investing has broken wide open and there are a lot of choices out there. So if there is something in like in particular that you're interested in not supporting or in supporting, chances are there's something that aligns with your values and you can probably choose to invest in a way that aligns with your values. Um, there was a lot of research for a while there when this started that the ESG funds that were out there, that environmental investing was underperforming what like just generic investments were doing or, or comparative investments were doing. That's not really the case anymore. You can absolutely like have fund by fund overperformance or underperformance. But as a market, ESG investing is generally doing as well or maybe even slightly better than when we're investing without using that ESG lens. And, and we need probably more of a track record to to be able to demonstrate that very solidly. But that being said, I think it, it's like underperformance is no longer a reason to not do that if it's something that you're interested in and something that aligns with your goals. So if it's something that's important to you, you can definitely use that as one of your criteria when you're picking the investments that you're using. And the and forget about performance when you're looking at investments. Like 90% <laughs> of your ability to achieve your goals is your is just how much you save. You know, the rest is all minutia. Like you, you know, it doesn't matter what you invest in you know, which stock you pick or buy, you know, what area, what accounts you're using. It's just how much do you save? Are you saving enough? And the rest will take care of itself. You know, the other 10% is, you know, maybe luck. Um, you know, how long you live? Do you have any <laughs> adverse health consequences that, that end up costing a lot of money? Do you live way longer than expected? You know, just historically, you know, we've gone through stretches of more or less droughts for lack of a better term in, in, in stock market growth. So are you one of the unlucky ones that kind of starts pulling money out when the stock market's going down that, that, you know, that's bad luck or, you know, the stock market on a run when you, you retire and start pulling money out that, that can really enhance things. So I think saving a lot solves a lot of problems for investors. Um, it's not about what's the best thing to invest in. It's just save a lot. And then it really, the rest doesn't matter nearly as much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Not to discount all that we've talked about for the last 25 minutes, but uh, you know, <laughs> it's all important. Yeah. It just all works together, really. Save enough yeah. for your goals so and I then invest according to when you need the money, what your goals and objectives are, and you should be in good shape. So I think in summary, like the big questions you want to ask yourselves when picking your investments is when do you need the money? How much do you need? So what kind of rate of return do we need to be seeing here? Um, 
how comfortable are you with declines in your portfolio value? If you're not comfortable with that, we should probably be doing something fairly conservative. Um, and also just what strategy can you use to best achieve your goals? Like what's going to give you the best chance at doing that? What are your goals? That's a big part of it too. So lots of different moving pieces with this. I think you know, we want to try to avoid doing this without thought, you know, just doing something by default or, or doing something because your friend at the water cooler said to do it. But, you know, I think part of planning is just making sure that you have a well thought out strategy. Well said. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. See you next time. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on thefinitygroup.com slash podcast, on our Finity Group YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group LLC.